So go ahead and grab a Bible, turn to 2 Kings 4. Our journey in this series, Gods and Kings, takes us yet to another story that's really so relevant for us today. This is a a story that we're going to look at this morning is really about death. Uh, How much experience do you have with death? You know, for me personally, I uh, lost my parents 10 and 11 years ago. And it was surreal waking up for the first time realizing that both my parents were gone. It was a very sobering, sobering thought. And then for me vocationally, as a pastor, I I deal with death all the time. I remember the very first sermon I preached at the very first church that I pastored in Alabama. There was an older gentleman that attended the 11 o'clock service. And uh, he came to church, listened to me preach. And then went home, and as soon as he got home, he died. And uh, it was pretty sobering to think about. The last sermon he heard was a sermon from me on that day. I can only hope that the coroner didn't list as the cause of death uh, very bad preaching. But there was a high degree chance that that was the case uh, those many years ago. So as a pastor, you know, death is really... A part of my job, and uh, the truth for all of us is it's our, death is our greatest enemy, isn't it? It's our oldest foe. And no matter what we do, no matter how hard we try, no matter how much you know, kale salad we eat or how much we exercise, how much money we spend, we're not going to be able to beat death, are we? I was reading about the CEO of Oracle. His name is Larry Ellison. He's the sixth, large, or sixth richest man in the world. And he spends, he donates $40 million a year to ending mortality. So he, he invests $40 million a year into research, understanding life, lifespan development processes and age-related diseases and disabilities. And this is, what, this is what Larry Ellison says. He says, death makes me angry. It just doesn't make sense to me, he says. Death's never made sense to me. How can a person be there and then just vanish and not be there? And then he goes on to say, death may not make any sense, but maybe, just maybe it can be defeated. Now, I, I think he's a little optimistic uh, from the financial angle there, but, but, there's, but there's no question death is uh, the greatest pain that we that we really go through and so there's no greater enemy than death and so death is so real death is so powerful we're going to need some strong medicine we're going to need more than just 40 million dollars to defeat it aren't we we're going to need something a lot more powerful and what we have in this story before us is really the story of God working in and through death and what this story in second kings 4 points us to is a greater story A story of the death of death. And I want us to look at it today. This story is 3,000 years ago, but again, it's just as relevant today as if it happened yesterday. You know why? Because because of the enemy death that is staring in front of us. So I'm going to ask, this is another lengthy passage. If you're willing and able, would you stand as we read the word of God today? We're going to begin at verse 8. 2 Kings 4. So one day Elisha went on to Shunem where a wealthy woman lived who urged him to eat some food. So whenever he passed that way, he would turn in there to eat food. 
And she said to her husband, behold now, I know that this is a holy man of God who is continually passing our way. Let us make a small room on the roof with walls and put there for him a bed, a table, a chair, and a lamp so that whenever he comes to us, he can go in there. And one day he came there and he turned into the chamber and rested there. And he said to Gehazi, his servant, call this Shunammite. And when he had called her, she stood before him and he said to him, say now to her, see you have taken all this trouble for us. What is to be done for you? Would you have a word spoken on your behalf to the king or to the commander of the army? And she answered, I dwell among my own people. And he said, well, what then is to be done for her? And Gehazi answered, well, she has no son and her husband is old. And he said, call her. And when he had called her, she stood in the doorway. And he said, at this season, about this time next year, you shall embrace a son. And she said, no, my Lord, O man of God, do not lie to your servant. But the, but the woman conceived and she bore a son about that time, the following spring, as Elisha had said to her. And when the child had grown, he went out one day to his father among the reapers. And he said to his father, oh, my head, my head. And the father said to his servant, carry him to his mother. And when he had lifted him and brought him to his mother, the child sat on her lap till noon and then he died. And she went up and laid him on the bed of the man of God and shut the door behind him and went out. And then she called to her husband and said, send me one of the servants and one of the donkeys that I may quickly go to the man of God and come back again. And he said, why will you go to him today? It's neither new moon nor Sabbath. And she said, all is well. And then she saddled the donkey and she said to her servant, urge the animal on, do not slacken the pace for me unless I tell you. So she, so she went out and came to the man of God at Mount Carmel. And when the man of God saw her coming, he said to Gehazi, his servant, look, there is the Shunammite. Run at once to meet her and say to her, is all well with you? Is all well with your husband? Is all well with the child? And she answered, all is well. And when she came to the mountain to the man of God, she caught hold of his feet and Gehazi came to push her away. But the man of God said, leave her alone for she is in bitter distress. And the Lord has hidden it from me and has not told me. And then she said, did I ask my Lord for a son? Did I not say, do not deceive me? And he said to Gehazi, tie up your garment, take my staff in your hand and go. If, any, if you meet anyone, do not greet them. If anyone greets you, do not reply. And lay my staff on the face of the child. Then the mother of the child said, as the Lord lives and as you live, I will not leave you. So he rose and followed her. Gehazi went on ahead and laid his staff on the face of the child, but there was no sound or sign of life. Therefore, he returned to meet him and told him, the child has not awakened. When Elisha came into the house, he saw the child lying dead on his bed. And so he went in and shut the door behind the two of them and prayed to the Lord. And then he went up and lay on the child, putting his mouth on his mouth, his eyes on his eyes, and his hands on his hands. And as he stretched himself upon him, the flesh of the child became warm. Then he got up again, walked once back and forth in the house, and went up and stretched himself upon him. The child sneezed seven times, and the, and the child opened his eyes. Then he summoned Gehazi and said, call this Shunammite. So he called her. 
And when she came to him, he said, pick up your son. She came and fell at his feet, bowing to the ground. And then she picked up her son and went out. Nations come and go, but the kingdom of God lasts forever. You may be seated. So I told you this was a very interesting story, didn't I? This story is really about resurrection. It's about death. But it really points us to resurrection. And so what I see are really three questions uh, in this text that, uh, that I want to try to answer today about resurrection. As we think about our greatest enemy, the medicine that we have that answers our greatest enemy is resurrection, isn't it? And so let me try to answer three questions for you today. Why is resurrection needed? Why do we need a resurrection? I think the answer is obvious, but, but we're going to go there anyway. And then secondly, who receives resurrection? And then lastly, what difference does resurrection really make? That's where I want to go this morning. So let's look at the first one. Why is resurrection even needed? Now, here's the story. You know, when Elisha travels, Elijah has gone to be with the Lord. Elisha has taken over. And so whenever he travels in his ministry, he will sometimes stop by Shunem. And uh, he has met this woman who's very wealthy, and she is his benefactor. She provides for his needs, and uh, she obviously is a woman of faith and a woman of means. And so she's using her means to support the kingdom of God. And so she, even under the blessing of her husband, decided to add a room to the house so that Elisha could stay there. So he's very grateful to her for her support, and he asked her, what is it that I could do for you? I mean, I've got some connections with people in high places. Perhaps I can put a good word in for you. And she responds by saying, you know what, there's really nothing that I need. And so Gehazi, who is the servant of Elisha, whispers in Elisha's ear, this woman has no son, and her husband is old. Now, uh, we just cannot fathom in today's culture uh, the amount of cultural pressure that existed on a woman to bear a child in that day. I mean, we just cannot even fathom it. Um, but there was a tremendous amount of pressure for women to bear, especially a son. And so the fact that she doesn't have a child, that she doesn't have a son, would be her greatest wound in her life. This would be her greatest pain that she is carrying. And so what Elisha says to her is that a year from now, you're going to you're going to give birth to a son, you better get ready. And the obvious implication of this is, this is not going to be a natural childbearing event, it's going to be a supernatural one, one in which God specializes. So, so Elisha makes this promise to her, and her response is really interesting. Her response is very similar to sometimes my response, or maybe your response. And she basically says, don't play with me, don't toy with me. Don't lie to me. Don't tell me something's going to happen when you know it's not going to happen. Now, that's, that's kind of an interesting response because you'd think she'd be overjoyed that the man of God is telling her this. But, but the question is, why is she saying that? And I think if you've ever experienced the pain of infertility, you know exactly why she is, she is saying this because she doesn't want to get her hopes up. She doesn't want to get her hopes broken. And she is guarding her heart against her hopes getting up, you know, for something, some blessing like this. I would bet that she has prayed for years and years and years. She has gotten her hopes up so many times only to have them dashed and disappointed at the fact that she's not going to give birth. 
And at some point, she made the decision, the dream that I have for having a child, for having a son, is over. I'm giving up on it, and I'm not going back there ever again because she just couldn't handle the disappointment. Now, here's the question, church. Have you ever guarded yourself against getting your hopes up? Yeah, I think we've all done that, right? We've all felt the sting of hopes being dashed. You know, we say, man, I I sure hope this pandemic is over, but I'm not getting my hopes up, right? Um, I've heard rumors that Andrew Luck may be coming out of retirement, but I'm not getting uh, my hopes up. So so we, we kind of avoid those kind of things. And so I think that's exactly where she is. I'm not getting my hopes up. Don't lie to me. Don't, don't toy with me. I'm not even going there. I'm not even going to consider it. And Elisha looks at her and says, lady, you better get ready. You're going to have a son, and it's going to be in about a year. You better, you know, batten down the hatches because he, he is coming. And so she conceives, and a year later, she does give birth to a son. And this is where the story takes a really interesting turn. The Bible tells us that he is, he is much older, that he has grown, and he becomes sick. And uh, his head is hurting as he's working out in the fields. Uh, You know, one of the commentators mentioned cerebral malaria as a possibility here for what what is, you know, for his condition. So his head is hurting. So his dad calls the servant in to take him back to his mother. And he is lying in her arms. And really, a few hours later, the child dies. And so right again, we're just faced with real life right here in the scripture. I mean, this is real life Uh, It's almost a daily occurrence for the people in in that day. And so she immediately springs into action. She takes the dead body of her son upstairs to the room that she had built for the prophet. She lays her son down on his bed. and, uh, And then she requests her husband to get a donkey and a servant so that she can make you know, make, uh, get on the road to go see Elisha, who is 15 miles away at Mount Carmel. And so the father is confused because he doesn't really know what's going on. We're not sure why she hasn't told him. Maybe he's not a man of faith. Maybe, you know, maybe there's some resistance there. We don't really know, but we're not told that. But she's moving quickly. And uh, she basically tells him all is well. And so she begins the journey, and Elisha is looking out from the distance, and and Elisha sees that she is coming towards him. So he sends Gehazi out to kind of find out what's going on and to see if everything is okay. And she she is asked by Gehazi, hey, is everything okay? And she, she doesn't mess around. She says, all is well, but she doesn't really stop to talk to him. She just blows right by Gehazi. She finally gets to Elisha. And uh, now we begin to see her emotions start to uh, really flow out of her. She falls at his feet and uh, throws herself really right at the feet of Elisha. Gehazi's trying to be the gatekeeper, if you will, and keep her away. And uh, Elisha rebukes him and says, let her go. Can't you tell she's in bitter distress? And then we see what she says to the prophet, which is really telling in verse 28. You really get an idea of what's going on in her heart. Uh, It says this, then she said, did I ask my Lord for a son? Did I not say, do not deceive me? Now, what's going on here, these are the words of a very bitter woman, right? And understandably so, she has been handed a very, very hard providence in the death of her son. There's very few things, if any, that are more painful than what she is experiencing, the death of 
of a child. And so, and so it's interesting to me that the Bible doesn't condemn her reaction in this because I think God is always patient uh, with, you know, with the raging emotions of, of believers who are going through a trial. I think that's the heart of God. But, that's, but that is where she is. And so she cries out to him, didn't, I didn't ask you for a son. I didn't ask for this, this kind of pain. And Elisha realizes that what was really meant as a really a kindness from, from God has, has, has really turned into a curse for her. And I think this is where we really begin to see why we need a resurrection. Because death is a curse. Death is so hard. And especially the death of a child. And so, and so we need a resurrection because we know what death does to us. Those who are left behind. And so she's filled with bitter grief. And, um, and she says, I knew this was going to happen. I knew it from the beginning. You know, why did you even do this to me? And I think it's at this point that we can really ask the question, have, have you ever thought about why there's death in the world? Have you ever really asked yourself that question? And I think the reason why, what the Bible tells us the reason why is because there's, there's death in the world because of sin. Really, what death is, is it's God's judgment on sin. That's what death really is. And so at the fall of humanity, when Adam and Eve fell into sin, when sin entered the human race, it resulted in every human being coming under the condemnation and the curse of death. It became a part of a world. It became a sin-cursed world, a, sin, a, a cursed world with the curse of death looming over, that, over it. And so we see, we see this in Genesis 2. Adam and Eve were warned of this. You know, God told him, you can eat of all the trees in the garden. But he said, if you eat of this one tree, in verse 17, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in that day you eat of it, you shall surely die. And so death was not a part of that original creation. And so what we see here is, is death is not, is not just merely an act of nature. And that's how atheists and evolutionists position it don't they that it's just kind of a normal part of the process of life it's it's just kind of a normal thing that everybody has to go through so so we might as well just kind of go with it but the bible tells us that death is really a consequence of the sin of humanity it's really god's judgment against sin and you see paul picking up this in romans five seventeen, where paul writes this because of one man's trespass that's adam death reigned through that one man. And so death has reigned over old people and young people. Death has reigned over newborns. Death reigns over the rich and the poor. Death reigns over men and women. Death reigns over the powerful and the elite and the outcast and the marginalized. Death reigns over every race and ethnicity. And so death is a curse. And it is our greatest enemy but there's a sense in which death is also our teacher you see the pain of death teaches us about the pain of sin on God's heart you know it gives us a real picture of the true nature and the destructiveness of sin because of the grief our sin causes the heart of God 
And so death is a reminder of that. That sin is a rejection of God. And it breaks his heart. Like losing a loved one breaks ours. And so it's in that way, death is a teacher. And so I, I would say that, that death really works in tandem with the law of God to bring us to Christ, to show us our need for a savior. And so when you look at the Ten Commandments, when you look at you know, the law of Moses and, and you judge yourself according to the law of Moses, you, you don't look at the law of Moses. You don't look at the Ten Commandments and say, man, I'm doing a really good job. I've kept every single one of those. Nobody says that. What we see in the Ten Commandments is that we are lawbreakers, that we fall short and we need a savior. That's what we learn. And in that way, the law is our teacher. Death is the same way. The reality of death teaches us that we have no power over it. And in that way, we need a savior. We need someone to deliver us from the reality of death. And that's what, that's what's, that's what she's crying out to God for in, in, this, in this story. And so she makes a beeline for Elisha and lays, lays this grief, this curse of sin right at his feet. So, so that's why we need a resurrection. But who is it that receives resurrection? I think that's, that's really the big question here. So, so when you think about this story, the story we just looked at, who's the key player in the story? Obviously, God is the key player in the story. So anytime you're asked a question in church, just say Jesus, and it'll always be right, you know. Um, Obviously, God, he's the key player in every story, um, have no doubt about that. But, but, but from a human standpoint, whose faith is driving the story? Is it a man? Nope. It's the woman. It's her faith. It's certainly not the woman's husband. He doesn't even know his son has, has died. And, um, you know, we don't know why she hasn't told him, but he, he doesn't know. So it's certainly not his faith that's right. He doesn't even know about it. It's certainly not Gehazi driving the story of this because, because he's trying to be an obstruction for the woman to even get to Elisha. So it's definitely not Gehazi. And then it's not even Elisha. Like Elisha doesn't even know what to do. I mean, did you notice that? Like Elisha gives his servant Gehazi his staff and says, go to the child and lay the staff on his head and see if that will bring healing so he does that you know what happens absolutely nothing so Elisha's thinking well you know the staff was powerful for Moses maybe it'll be powerful for me you know but but it doesn't really work at all here's what I want us to see church who is it that receives resurrection the woman does who experiences the grace in the intervention of God the woman does and what's fascinating, in every resurrection of the Bible, except for one, so if you look at all the resurrections in the Bible, the person who receives their dead back, except for one instance, is a woman. Isn't that interesting? Don't you find that fascinating? Then in, then in every, every resurrection of the Bible, except for one, the person who receives the resurrection back, or the, their, their dead back, is a woman. I think it's amazing. Is that just an anomaly? Is that just a, you know, trivial pursuit here this morning? I don't think so. I think God is sending a message. And you see this, you see this message in, a, in Hebrews eleven thirty five because the writer of Hebrews mentions this. Notice what it says. He's, this is the hall of faith, if you know what I mean. He's talking about, 
you know, all the people that have received, uh, done great things because of their faith in God. Notice what he says. What more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the, the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword and were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war and put foreign enemies to flight. Then notice what he says here. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Isn't that interesting? It doesn't say Christians received their dead back. It doesn't say families received their dead back. It says women received their dead back. I mean, think about it. Just a few weeks ago, I preached on Elijah you know, raising the, you know, the son of the, the widow at Zarephath. You remember that? How about the story of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead? Who is it that receives Lazarus? Mary and Martha. So you see this pattern all the way through scripture. And so what is evident in this story of faith is that it's the faith of the woman that's driving this. And her faith is far from perfect. Like we've already seen she's guarding her heart from having more faith, right? Like she's, she, like she's just real. She's just like one of us. She's just, she doesn't want to get it her faith too up. She doesn't want to get her hopes too up, but she has enough faith. And what God does, even in the midst of imperfect faith, is he blesses her anyway. Now, what's the point of all of that? Well, I think the question is this, who gets the gospel of grace? Who is it that receives the gospel of grace? And the answer is really simple. It's the marginalized. It's the nobody. It's the powerless. Now why? Because grace is unmerited favor from God. Grace is a gift that we don't earn, that we don't deserve, that we can't achieve. And so grace goes to those who recognize their utter inability to save themselves. You see, grace goes to those who see their need for grace and that's what's driving this. And that's what opens the door for you and me to receive the grace that we need. What's interesting is there's a running conflict in Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. Throughout the entire Bible, there's this running conflict between religion and the grace of the gospel. Man, they're just banging, banging on each other, just left and right. And so religion says that if you keep the rules, if you pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, if you work really hard, if you're better than everybody else, then you're going to tip the odds in your favor of getting a blessing from God. You're going to put God in a position where you've got leverage over him and he's got to deliver for you. And that's what religion teaches us. I have it because I've earned it. I deserve it. I work for it. And so, and so that's what religion really teaches us. But see, grace is completely different because grace says no one can earn God's favor. That no one deserves God's favor. That grace is a free gift from God. That grace comes to the poor. It comes to the powerless. It comes to the slave. It comes to the downwardly mobile, right? It comes to the hungry. It comes to the thirsty. Grace comes to the prisoner, to the leper, the prostitute, and the tax collector. Grace comes to anyone who sees their need for it. And that's what we see right here. How about you? 
How about you this morning? I hope you're not basing your hope of future resurrection on your religious resume. I hope you're not thinking I'm gonna wave this so that God can see it. Because church, it's just not gonna be enough. We need the grace, the grace of God. And it comes to those who realize their own brokenness. It comes to those who are desperate for the grace of God, who, who cry out for the grace of God, and that's where she is. And so it doesn't even require, you know, a whole lot of faith. It just requires a recognition and a hunger for it. I was reading this uh, article about this guy named David Schwartz. He, uh, he left college in 1972 to start a business called Rent-A-Wreck. And uh, it's really interesting. He had acquired a fleet of uh, shabby, beat-up vehicles who were waiting to get to the scrap heap in California. And so as, as really kind of a joke, he started a Rent-A-Wreck business where you could rent uh, a broken down shabby car that actually would drive uh, but it was beat up it didn't have bumpers it had big dents and you know all kinds of things wrong with it and um, and so he would rent out these these vehicles for people to drive and the business exploded <laughs> the business just took took off and so he, uh, people he found absolutely love driving around in the worst available car that they could that they could actually drive. And so he said there were plenty of instances where people would return a car and uh, they said, oh man, I'm so sorry because while I was driving it, I got another dent in it. And uh, he was like, man, don't worry about it. Just turn it in. Or, you know, they're bringing it in late. And he's like, man, I'm not gonna charge you a late fee. Don't worry about it. And, and, uh, and so the article talked about this wife in Los Angeles who asked him as she was thinking about renting one of these wrecks, she said, where is the ashtray? And her husband looked at her and said, honey, the whole car is an ashtray. And uh, I thought that was just absolutely hilarious. You know what the truth is, church? We're all broken. We're all broken people who need God's grace. And um, we've broken God's law and we've sinned and you know, the good news of the gospel is so simple, church. If we'll just own it, if we'll just own our sin and confess our sin and repent of our sin and call out for grace, you know what? God will give it to us because that's just who he is. And it's not because we're great people. It's not because we're worth saving. It's just because. And so what God does, what he specializes in is raising the dead spiritually and, and then later on raising, raising us physically. And so who gets the resurrection? People who know they need God, just like this woman. Now, what difference does resurrection really make in our life? Like what's on the ground? What difference does it, does it make in kind of the world we're living in and the time that we're living in? What difference does it make? Well, I think we need to kind of hone in on this. And so, and so let's, let's kind of dive back into the story. So how does this boy get out from under this, this death sentence? The, you know, the staff really doesn't work. So what happens? Well, let me show you what happens in verse 33. And so the writer of Kings tells us this. And so Elisha goes in and he shut the door and, behind, and shut the door behind the two of them and he prayed to the Lord. And so there's power in prayer, church. 
There's power when we call out to God in prayer, whatever it is. And, and so verse 34, then he went up and he lay on the child, putting his mouth on his mouth, his eyes on his eyes, and his hands on his hands. And as he stretched himself out upon him, the flesh of the child became warm. Now this is, this is really, really interesting. So apparently he's, after he spends a season in prayer, he lays completely on the child, eye to eye, mouth to mouth. It's not mouth to mouth resuscitation, it's mouth to mouth resurrection. That's what it is. And, and so he lays completely on the child and the child is covered by Elisha. The child is hidden in Elisha. And as I was thinking about this, I, I just asked the question, you know, how does God do this for us? Well, it's really a picture of the cross, is it not? That this is a picture of what Jesus does for us. What did Jesus do for us? He covered us. So in other words, if God, if God were to look down from heaven that day and he looks down straight down on the back of Elisha, he couldn't even see the child because, because Elisha's covered the child. And so in the same way, Jesus has covered us. In the same way, what Jesus does is he bears our sin. He takes on our sin. In fact, Corinthians tells us he that, you know, that, that knew no sin became sin for us. And so the good news of the gospel is that the sinless becomes the sin bearer. So what happens with Jesus covering us, the judgment of God comes down and Jesus takes it for us, paying our penalty, covering us completely so that we're safe. And he takes the cup of wrath. He bears it for us. Jesus, church, is our covering. That's what he is. And I think that's kind of what this story is really, really pointing to. I was reading about uh, 1987, there was a Northwest Airlines crash, um, plane crash in Detroit. And um, here's some of the, the wreckage. It took off from the, the airport and didn't get up very high and then crashed right onto a freeway. This is in 1987. And, and, um, and then several people who were driving on the freeway died because of the plane crash, but every person on the plane died except for a four-year-old little girl named Cecilia. And they thought when they first got to the scene, they thought that she would, had been a passenger in one of the cars. And uh, then they checked the flight manifest and realized she had actually been, been on the plane. And so she was the only one to survive the plane crash uh, that day. And so from the wreckage of the plane and, and then the testimony of the little girl, they were able to piece together how her mother saved her that day. And so as the plane was going up and then started to, started to nosedive down, her mom acted just instinctly, just quickly unbuckled her seatbelt, wrapped herself around her daughter, cocooning her daughter completely. And then when they crash landed, the mother took the brunt of the, of the crash saving her daughter's life. You see, it was the love of her mother that saved her that day. Her mother covered her. And that's just a picture of the gospel. That's what it is. It points to the gospel. You see, the wages of sin is death. But if somebody else covers those wages, we don't have to pay them. And that's it. And so, the Bible says it is by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not of yourself. It is the gift of God. 
And so Jesus not only covers us, but he, but he really does something else. He, he imputes to us righteousness. You see this in 2 Corinthians 5.21. So Paul writes this, For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So this is, this is another part of what happened on the cross. That, and, and this is what really facilitates resurrection. That not only have we been covered, not only are we shielded from, from really the judgment of God on sin, but now we've been imputed with the righteousness of God, which is absolutely amazing. I mean, when you think about it, when God looks at us, what does he see in us? He sees that we're faithless. He sees that we're rebels. He sees that we've turned our back against God, that we've rebelled against him. He sees that we're selfish, we're self-absorbed. But what if you were covered? What if you were completely covered? Then he would see Jesus. Because what righteousness is, is Jesus living in us. So now, because of the covering of Christ, because we come to him by grace through faith, what God sees in us is his son. He sees the character of his son in us, which is miraculous and mind-blowing. And so we're covered. And so that's what it really means to be a Christian. See, being a Christian doesn't mean you've gotten your act together. It doesn't mean that, you know, that you've turned over a new leaf or you've become a really good person. To be a Christian just simply means you're covered. You're covered. And there's no better news than that. And this doesn't give us a license to go live in sin, but what it really does is it frees us to pursue righteousness so that we actually become righteous in our character. And that's the work that God is involved in all of us right now. That's why we, we go through all the stuff we go through because God is getting us ready. He's getting us ready for heaven. He's getting us ready for resurrection. That's what he's doing. And so Jesus is your covering, which really means, church, your resurrection is certain. It is certain. So death is no longer judgment. Death is now a doorway for the life we've really always wanted. Now, what this really means is, church, we're going to live forever. For those who've, you know, received the grace of God, we're going to live forever. Um, we, we get... We get the resurrection. So, so then the question is, well, what difference does that make? I, I think it makes three very practical differences. I, let, me just, let me just share this with you just real fast. I've got a minute 30 left. Let me finish with this. Here's the difference the resurrection makes. We don't have to validate ourselves anymore. We don't have to prove ourselves anymore. We don't have to live in fear and anxiety of what other people think of us. Because what other people think of us doesn't matter because we know what God thinks of us. That he would give up what was most precious to him for us. That the reality is that, that God loves you. He likes you. You are his beloved. You are his, you are his son. You are his daughter. It doesn't matter what anybody else thinks. So what that means practically is you don't have to look great. You don't have to, you know, you don't have to be liked. You don't have to be popular. You don't have to take selfies with, uh, with important people so that you can feel like you're important, right? Because you already know that you're important. So much so that God would secure our resurrection through his son. You know, I was looking at Taylor Swift. She does a documentary. There's an article about her and 
the documentary that she does on Netflix, and she, she literally says this. This is what she says. She says, we're, we're people who got into this line of work because we wanted people to like us, because we were intrinsically insecure, because we liked the sound of people clapping, because it made us forget how much we feel like we're not good enough. Isn't that fascinating? I mean, here she, she's admitting that, which is a stroke of amazing honesty there. Well, the good news is none of us are good enough. None of us measure up, but we're covered. We're covered. So that's the first one. We don't have to live validating ourselves. Secondly, here's a, here's a big one, church. We, we don't have to be afraid of the brokenness of the world. We don't have to be afraid of the brokenness of the world. We, we, we don't have to fear the mess and the chaos and the instability and the division that we're seeing in, in the world today. We, we, we don't. We don't have to be afraid. Why? Because of resurrection. Like church, we win. <laughs> when all this is over, we win. And so the promise of resurrection allows us to enter into the chaos and darkness as children of light, as ambassadors for Christ, pointing people to a better kingdom, to the eternal kingdom where Jesus is making all things new. We don't need to be afraid because the worst thing that could happen is we die. And then we're resurrected. And then lastly, we don't have to fear death. Death no longer has dominion over us because of what, what happened in this story. And so, and so you know the rest of the story. You, you, know, you read it along with me. So uh, the, the boy's body warms up. Elisha gets up, kind of walks around, probably does some more praying. And, um, and then you know, he gets up and stretches himself out on the child again. And uh, the child sneezes seven times. We don't know if there's a theological significance to that. I'm not sure uh, that there really is. And the child opened his eyes. And he was raised back to new life. And, um, and so the mother is reunited with her son. And uh, grace is really realized and experienced. And so what we know is that God is sovereign over life and death. That's what we know. There's going to be a day, church, when he calls us home. And God is, God, is, God is the sovereign. You know, he gets to choose that because he's creator. And uh, if we're in Christ, we need not fear that. We just know it's time. And we're like, let's go. Let's do this thing. And so let me just kind of close with this. You know, this little village of Shunem is about two or just two or three miles from a, another little village, Nain. And Jesus raised a little boy there, and uh, there was a mother there in Nain, in the village of Nain, who received her dead back because of the ministry of Jesus. And what we see here, church, is that Jesus is the greater Elisha. He's the greater one. Because what he did is he killed death once and for all. You see, he died, and he rose, and he brought the death of death. And our Savior, Jesus, is the greater Elisha. And that's why we don't have to fear death because we are, we are in Jesus. Isn't that great news today? So we don't have to live in fear. And uh, we can celebrate the resurrection, which is really every single Sunday we can celebrate Easter. So let's pray together. So Heavenly Father, we, uh, we just rejoice we rejoice 
that you help us open our eyes to see our need for grace, our need for mercy. And God, I pray that you would enlarge our hearts. I pray that you would fill our hearts with gratitude, with joy, that we can rise above the chaos of the world. We can rise above the death and destruction and division and deceptions of the world. We can rise above it, God, because because we're in you and you rose. And so God, death is as real as rain, but resurrection is more real. And so God, we just pray that Anybody here who doesn't know you as Lord and Savior, anybody watching online would take that step today of just simply owning, owning their sin, confessing their sin, and calling out to you to save them. It's just so simple. I'm a sinner, I've broken God's law, and I need a Savior. I don't deserve it, I can't earn it, and I can't achieve it. But by God's grace, I can receive it. God, I pray there'd be one person who would pray that prayer today. That the Spirit of God would do your work in saving those, and seeking those who who are lost. So God, would you do that today? We give you praise and we give you glory. We love you, God. In Jesus' name we pray, amen and amen.